I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 5. This morning we continue through our series through the letter of James. Now next week we'll conclude the series and probably next week and the coming week we'll share with you a little bit more about where we'll be in the fall season and the series that we'll jump into in beginning in October. Um, but then the ongoing topic that we've looked at through the letter of James, the series Get Real, is talking about the real life impact that faith is to have on our life. We've looked at it from a, very, a variety of different angles. We've talked about the real impact that our faith is to have on our life when it comes to dealing with hardship, when it comes to dealing with temptation, when it deals with testing, with trial. We've looked at it through all of those different things as well as when, uh, when challenges come our way. But we've taken time to look at that and realize the real life impact that our faith is to have upon our life. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that we see consistently in the New Testament, really all through Scripture, as a follower of Jesus Christ, our faith in Jesus is not meant to be something that we just profess on a Sunday morning, or nor is it just something that's contained to our private, personal, uh, devotional time, but rather it's meant to be overarching into all of our life and to impact every bit and every part of who you are, every part of your family, every part of your thinking, every part of your life and the choices that you make. Your faith is meant to shape uh, how you respond, how you act, how you react. So this morning I would like to share with you a message that I've called How to Emerge Victoriously. And when I think about that, that topic, how to emerge victoriously, I think it's very easy as a follower of Jesus, if you're committed to following Jesus here, I think it's very easy to hear a title like that and to immediately think about how to emerge victoriously and think about the current situation you're walking through, perhaps the current setback or disappointment you've faced or the unexpected news that you received. And it's very tempting and very easy to look at a topic like that, how to emerge victoriously and apply it to our immediate circumstance. And while there is much application that I think we can put into that when it comes to our lives and the challenges we face, what I want to challenge you to think about as a follower of Jesus Christ, when it comes to how to emerge victoriously, it's not so much dealing with the immediate circumstance you're facing, but it's looking at all of life. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't live life merely focused in on the page that we're living on in life right now, but rather we understand where we're living in light of the entire time that we're in on this earth. As a follower of Jesus, we're committed to realize that Jesus said this life is temporary. As, as permanent as it may feel, as, as permanent as your situation may feel, as permanent as 80 to 90 or 100 years, however many God may give you in this life, as permanent as that may feel, what the Bible says is that's temporary. In fact, it says the longevity of your life, that the, the length of it, and we, Pastor Paul looked at this in the previous weeks, the length of your life is is. Compared to eternity, it's like a vapor that appears for a minute and then is gone. But it's that fast. And so when we think about how to live victoriously as a follower of Jesus Christ, the focus is not so much on the circumstance you're currently facing. Scripture gives application to that and instruction to that. But it really is on the big picture of life and how you live for Christ so that you emerge victoriously when Christ returns, that you're able to go and to be with him forever. I really believe one of the most damaging compromises that our world offers to the Christian is to get so focused on the now that we lose sight of and live with a forgetfulness of what will be. And we get just so bogged down with life now, what's happening now. I truly believe for a Christian who is so focused on the current desires and cares of this life that a Christian living with that mindset is at the very least distracted and ineffective as a Christian. So everything that we do as a follower of Jesus is to be done with eternity in mind. 
Now, before someone should hear that, and you might think, well, you're saying the current life doesn't matter, the current situation I'm facing doesn't matter, the current decisions I make doesn't matter. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. But much like a runner runs a race, or a runner who's perhaps in a marathon, and they're, they're thinking about all of the miles that they're running, and their, their mind is always on the finish line. Their mind is always on, on crossing that finish, but they realize that crossing the finish line properly involves the current step that they're taking. It involves the current lap that they're running. It involves the current mile that they're, they're pacing themselves at. So it's with that in mind, I would like to uh, look at what James writes to these early believers in James chapter 5, beginning in verse number 7. I want to look at verses 7 through 12, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it for a little bit this morning. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble, grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you too will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes and no, otherwise you will be condemned. I want you to look back in verse number 7. Look at verse 7 one more time with me. Verse 7 says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. That phrase, until the Lord's coming. Many times we can read that and it's very easy to assume we're in a church setting, we're surrounded by many believers in this room this morning. It's very easy to see that phrase and to think of that phrase, the Lord's coming, and to assume that everyone is on the same page, everyone knows what we're talking about, everyone's thinking the same thing. But I, really, I realize that in a room like this and in a gathering like this, and even when we have our moving forward classes and get to know more individuals who are connecting to the State College Assembly family, I see a number of individuals from different backgrounds, different walks of life, uh, different, uh, different denominations, a number of things. And so I really thought it would be good this morning while we're looking at the return of the Lord and we're studying through the letter of James, just to pause where we're at in James for a few minutes and to talk a little bit about this, this phrase, the Lord's coming. So this morning, I just want to pause James, set it aside for a few minutes, take a little bit of time and, and give you kind of that, the who, what, when, where, why approach to the Lord's coming explain it, and then we'll jump back into James and find some application for our lives when it comes to waiting for the return of Christ. So first, when it comes to, to the Lord's coming, I think the, the first question to simply ask is, what is the Lord's coming? What is the Lord's coming? Uh, the Lord's coming, to put it as simple as possible, is the fulfillment of a promise Jesus gave his early disciples. Jesus gave his early disciples a number of promises, a number of times where he talked about returning. But look at, I want to look at just two of them very quickly. In John chapter 14, Jesus said this to his disciples, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So Jesus is giving his current disciples the promise that he's leaving, but he will return. And in Revelation, at the very, Revelation chapter 20, the very end, second to last verse, 
He gives this promise once again, and this is, again, to all believers. So the first one was specifically spoken to, to his immediate audience, the disciples, applies to us, but we see specifically Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So when we refer and we talk about the coming of the Lord's coming, we're talking about the fulfillment of the promise Jesus gave to every single one of his followers, both from, from the time that he walked this earth to today, that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that promise is for you that he is coming again. The second question, the second thing that we can put to it, we've kind of already answered this, not only is what is the Lord's coming, is whose coming is it? Whose coming is it? The, the obvious answer that we've already looked at is it's, it's the coming of Jesus Christ. It's the promise that Jesus has given. Look with me in, um, in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through uh, 11. Now, in the book of Acts, the opening of Acts is almost the kind of a, a continuation from the Gospels. We see in the Gospels the, the life of Jesus and the impact of Jesus while he was on this earth, his continuing impact into our lives, what he's done, his life, death, and resurrection. The book of Acts begins a shift, and there's this opening, the opening pages of Acts kind of walks through that shift taking place of Jesus was here in the, in the Gospels, and in the, in the book of Acts is now the Holy Spirit comes and empowers Jesus' followers to continue in what it is Jesus has done. But listen to this, kind of a transition point. In Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, talking about Jesus with his disciples. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Then they were looking, in, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will go, come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So it's talking about there will be a visible return of Jesus Christ. That the angel says, just as you've seen Jesus go to his disciples, you'll see him return. That there will be a visible return of Jesus physically in body will come and we'll be able to see him. Once again, 2,000 years ago, he ascended and, and he's coming again. That's the promise Jesus has given. We can bog our minds and our, our um, understanding down with all sorts of different details and trying to understand when it's going to be, trying to discern when it's going to be. I can remember uh, when I was growing up uh, in 1988, a pastor released a book and it was 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. And uh, and other then that's not been the only one. There's been other times where individuals have, have sensed that they, they, God gave them divine insight onto exactly when Jesus would return. And, but Jesus really says, no one knows the day or the hour. But instead of getting caught up with trying to discern the exact time, Jesus says we should be aware of the times, the season, recognizing that he will return. And it, when we speak of the return of Christ, we're talking about the return of Jesus. The third question is where? So who, what, when, where, why? Talk about all those things. Where is, his, where is he coming? Uh, two things specifically. First, the Bible tells us that he's coming for us in the air. Look in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. If you can put that on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of an archangel and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
and so we will be with the Lord forever. So first it says, where, when we talk about where is he coming, the Bible says that he will come and we will meet him in the air. It says in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye. But it's in a split second. It won't be a matter of thinking, well, I'll, in that last second, I'll finally pray the prayer and, and ask Jesus to come into my life to place my faith in him. The Bible says it will be so fast, so quick, that you won't even have that second to think about it in light of the fact that you've been living a life not wanting Christ anyway, so that would not be your first reaction, recognizing that he's coming. But it says it will happen so fast, it'll be like in the twinkling of an eye, that we'll be taken and we'll meet up with him in the air and we'll be taken to be with him forever. But not only does the Bible tell us, and there's a lot of details that we can get into, and in no way does this, uh, is this meant to be an exhaustive covering of all the details when Christ returns, but not only does the Bible tell us that Christ will come and we'll meet up with him in the air, but it also speaks of a time that he'll come and he'll plant his feet back on the earth. And he'll come as a returning judge and a reigning king to deal with the sin and to set things right on the earth. Look with me in Zechariah chapter 4. This is chapter 14, sorry. In Zechariah, and you'll see a lot of this in Revelation as well, but I just want you to see the picture. Zechariah chapter 14, a prophetic uh, prophecy given by Zechariah to the day that Christ would return as judge. On that day, his feet, speaking of Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split from two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Again, a lot of details that, that you could spend time focused on, but the thing that I want you to see, it says there is coming a day that Jesus will return, and not only do we meet him in the air, but it says there's a coming a day that he comes as a judge and he plants his feet back on the earth and he deals with sin that he deals with it in finality, he deals with the devil, and he brings judgment. So we speak of where is he coming. The fourth thing is, is when is he coming back? As I've already mentioned, that we can bog our minds and our, our focus down on pinpointing the exact time, pinpointing the exact detail. And, and a lot of it is, while there's many good intentions that I've seen from individuals and, and books and studies that have been given, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I think our focus should be less on the specific detail and more on the season. That Jesus says you can recognize the seasons shifting. Just like you can look at the weather and recognize the weather is shifting and things are changing, he says to recognize things are changing and his return is coming soon. As far as, as specifics of when he comes, one author that I was reading, a quote that he, um, he gave that I think is very fitting in understanding this, when is he coming back and how we have our hearts ready, is if you could put this on the screen. So by O.S. Hawkins, and he says, we should live as if Christ died yesterday and the cross is still standing atop Golgotha. We should also live as if Christ rose this morning and we can still see his grave clothes folded neatly inside the empty tomb. And we should live as if he is coming back tomorrow and always being patient until the Lord's coming. That when it comes to understanding the return of Jesus Christ and when he returns that for you and me, we are to live with a watchfulness and an anticipation and an expectancy in our hearts for every day and every moment and every second. I talked about on Wednesday night during our prayer gathering a couple of different times in the New Testament. One's in First Timothy or Second Timothy where Paul's writing to Timothy and he talks about being long, his longing for heaven, his longing for Jesus. That your life should be consumed with a longing for Jesus Christ to return. Your life should be consumed with a desire and a longing to see him 
once again, to see his reign and his, his, his order established in our lives and, and established in the earth for Jesus to return. And as we think about the urgency of Christ's return and the, the longing in our hearts to see him return, uh, there's many things I could say about missions and our commitment to missions and understanding why we're so driven as a church to, to bring the gospel and to share Jesus with the unreached. It's because we realize that we are living on the cusp of when Jesus returns. And that when he returns, we, right now we're in the window where we can make a difference in people's lives to understand and know the significance of his return and who he is. But once he returns, since he returns as a judge. Fifth thing to look at is when talking about Jesus' return and the coming of the Lord is why is he coming back? The Bible talks about Jesus' coming and gives a number of prophecies, a number of statements, a number of verses. But many times I think as, as a church and as Christians, we can easily neglect understanding the return of Christ. See, so often when we talk about the return of Christ or we talk about the coming of Christ, our mind immediately goes to Christmas or our mind immediately goes to the cross and we think about the coming of Christ as a savior, the coming of Christ as uh, to, to die in the pla- our place for our sin. But when you look in scripture at the, the passages that talk about the coming of Christ and the return of Christ, the passages that talk about the coming of Christ in all the Bible, if you were to take all the scriptures and stack them up and look at them together, you'll find that one-third of all the scriptures in the Bible that talk about the coming of Christ, one-third of them talk about his first coming, the Christmas season, dying on the cross, all, they talk about his first coming. Two-thirds of all the passages in the Bible that talk about the coming of Christ talk about his second coming. And when Jesus comes again, the Bible tells us, again, two-thirds of all the passages that talk about the coming of Christ, the Bible says that when Jesus comes again, He's not coming as the Savior. He's coming as the judge. The first time he came, he came as Savior. The second time he comes, he's coming as a judge. Look with me at James 5, verse 9. We've already read this, but look at this once again. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. When we talk about the judgment of Christ and the return of Christ, it's not some obscure doctrine that we're trying to fluff up and make bigger than it is. Nor is it some scare tactic that's been created by man to be used in church to, to get people in the pews and to create a fear within them. The return of Christ as judge upon this earth and upon all mankind is a standing doctrine that we must realize and we must understand and we must choose to live by. I want to take you to one more passage that talks about Christ coming as judge and then we'll jump right back into James and find some application for us. But in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11... Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, this is what is known as the great white, white throne judgment and the, uh, the coming of Christ as, as judge. This is the final order of things, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and earth and heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what, was, what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That repeatedly in Scripture, it tells us that Jesus is coming again, and he will come as a judge. 
And when he comes as a judge, it's not the time that, that we look at and say, well, then I'll just point to all the good that I've done. I'll point to all my good efforts, all my good deeds, all my random acts of kindness, all the things that I've done that are good that I could point to that would then give me entrance into heaven. And th- th- that won't be the time for that. What this says is Jesus stands and sits as a judge in what is called the great white throne judgment. And as, we, as mankind stands before him to be judged, it says that his presence will be so penetrating. Look in verse, verse 11 again. It says his presence will be so penetrating that the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Can you imagine the presence of God, the presence of Jesus being so penetrating, so exposing, that earth is stripped down to its core, that says the heavens flee from his presence, so there's nothing else to focus on upon except Jesus Christ standing there as judge. And it says that in that time, there won't be, it won't be a matter of pointing to what we've done that's good, what we've done that, that works, what we've done, that we've done that feels like it justifies us before God. In fact, looking at your good deeds and looking at what you've done will be much like wearing a black shirt into, under a black light. That you can stand there wearing black and it looks like you're all fine and everything looks good, but the minute you step under a black light, all of a sudden you see all this fuzz and lint that stands out that you didn't see a second ago. That's what the presence of God will look like on that judgment day when it comes to your works and your efforts and what you've done. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, meaning when we live life for self, when we put ourselves first, even when we put ourselves first in the kind acts that we do for others, if it's rooted in self, then it still misses the mark. It really highlights for you and for me, and, and we could spend the rest of this morning talking about this, but it highlights for you and for me the significance and the importance of what we do with Jesus in this life. The decision you make for Jesus Christ in this life carries weight for all eternity. That it's in that day and in that time as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you're standing there and for the believers, it's a judgment seat of Christ for the, for the world, it's, it's the, the great white throne. And as you're standing there before him, The only thing that you can point to is not all the times you've been to church, not all the times you've given, not all the books in the Bible you've memorized, not all the the things that you've done, not all the ways you've served, not how many times you were an usher, not how many times you sang, not how beautiful you sang, not all the different things that you can point to. The only thing that you can point to in that time is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's looking to him, looking to Jesus and recognizing what he's done on your behalf. As I said, what you do with, the, with your choice and what you do with Jesus Christ is a decision that has to be made in this life, but it carries weight for all of eternity. We must remember that in that time, and I know there's times individuals will, will talk about, well, in that time, I'll, just, I'll, I'll lean upon the love of God. And you have to realize that the love of God desires for all mankind to be saved, but the justice of God requires all sin to be judged. And so the answer to all of that is Jesus Christ, that he demonstrates the love of God, he takes the full judgment for your sin, so that everyone who places their faith in him escapes the wrath of God, that he's the solution, he's the answer, that a loving God would not send a person to hell, well, a loving God would send a savior to rescue. That's what he's done. So with that frame of understanding, I want to give you one more thing, uh, and then we'll jump right back into James. So when it comes to understanding the what, the who, the why, the what, the when, when it comes to the return of Christ, I think the the final question that we can look at this morning is how are we to wait? As a follower of Jesus, how are we to wait as we wait for the return of Christ? And this is where James weighs in and gives us some instruction. So the first thing when it comes to the return of Christ, how we are to wait, is we wait with patience. We wait with patience. 
James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. He says that we wait with patience. The, the word patience that James uses speaks of a long-suffering. It speaks of a persevering. It speaks of a, a bearing up under. It speaks of a, a sticking with it. And, and the word that he uses was often specifically used to describe a runner as they would run in a race. And, and he spoke of a runner, and as they would run, they were in that last leg of the, of the race, whether it be the last mile, the last quarter mile, the last lap, um, the last stretch. And he talked about the, the word describes the runner in that last stretch and the focus and the determination that they choose to have in their mind as they're running the, that last bit. And if you've ever ran, I don't know if, you're, if anyone here is a runner, but if you've ever ran, whether it be in a race or just, uh, just for exercise or whatever it is, you begin to you realize that usually it's the last mile, the last distance that's the hardest. And it's the hardest not so much because of the physical exertion that's been given as much as it is on the mental focus that's required. Realizing the mental barriers that you have to push through to get to that final destination or that final finish line. And that's what James is talking about, is that, that mental preparation, that the willingness to wait, the willingness to recognize the patience that's required in waiting for Christ's return. And the example James uses specifically is a farmer, talking about a farmer as he plants his field, as he sows his crop. And speaking of the farmer, he identifies specifically the responsibility that the farmer has. Like for any farmer who were to arrive in the harvest season and were to be surprised by the harvest, to walk out on his field and one day be surprised, oh my goodness, it's, it's time to harvest the corn. That any farmer who would be surprised by the harvest, we would say was probably a foolish and even negligent farmer. But instead, the farmer is invested daily in the process of getting his field ready. He's invested daily in the preparation, daily in the dealing with, with, uh, with disease, dealing with um, with insects, dealing with all sorts of things that would come against the harvest, ultimately realizing that at the end, he can't control when the harvest comes, is going to come, but daily he has a responsibility to be ready so that when the harvest comes, he's ready for that. Look what James, uh, James 5, 7 says, but in the ESV translation, I want you to hear it this way. It says, be patient therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Notice he says early and late rains. The farmer doesn't know when the rains are coming. He can't control when they come. He can't control if they're early or late or right on time. However, the farmer keeps his eye on the precious fruit that will, be result, that will result because of it. In our lives, how often do we forfeit the precious fruit God wants to develop in us because we don't have the patience to wait or to cultivate what it is in our lives that, that God's at work in? And while that applies to the, the segments and pieces of our life, ultimately it applies to our waiting for the return of Christ, that there's this patience within us as we wait, keeping our eye on the harvest, around the prize of, of Christ's return. Secondly, how are we to wait? First, with patience. Secondly, with decisiveness. Look at James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. We wait with decisiveness, or maybe a different word that we could use as you wait with conviction. Look in, uh, in verse 8, he says, you too, that there's a personal responsibility. 
But there's a personal responsibility that you and I carry in our following Jesus and in our waiting for his return, that we have a responsibility as we wait and how we wait. And it says, he says this, um, he says, you to be patient as you stand firm. It speaks of an, an established heart, being planted and established as we wait. And for me, I really think as I look at this and I read what James is saying in, in verse 8, you to be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. I think that the thing that it challenges me on is that we each have a responsibility for the condition in which we keep our hearts. That you have a responsibility for the condition in how you keep your heart. That so much happens, and, and so much in life just happens, and it just goes by, and we just kind of flow with how things are happening and how things are going, or later we point to it and, and say, well, you know, this happened or that happened, and, and I think even sometimes we can allow a victim men mentality to, to take root in our minds. We're saying, well, you know, we're just dismissing ourselves from responsibility and things. But what James says is as we wait for the return of Jesus, that life doesn't just happen, but we live it with conviction. We live it with decisiveness, being aware and alert to what's happening in our hearts, being alert and aware to the surroundings around us, the circumstances we're facing, and how our heart's responding to that, being alert and aware to, to the condition of our heart because we're each responsible for our own hearts and the condition we keep it in. Number three, so we wait with patience, we wait with decisiveness. Third, we wait uh, inspired and challenged by the past. Look in James chapter five, verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. That he points to the prophets, he points to the Old Testament, he points to the stories of those who've gone before and says, use them and be inspired by the past. Uh, my wife and I, this past summer, this past June, we celebrated 25 years of being married together. And as we've been married together for 25 years, there's a number of decisions and things that we've made that we look back now on. And of course, you, you look back and you, you learn from, you look back and you say, God, thank you that we made the right choice, all those things. But there's times where we'll sit and we'll talk with our kids and we'll just talk with either we are our sons or our daughters and we'll just talk with them about life and perhaps it's a decision that they're facing or uh, a choice that they're facing or even just a, a time of waiting, a season of waiting, a season of trusting in God. And all of our kids, if you notice, all of our kids are, are teens and up uh, into the young adult phase. And in all of that, we, we will sit and we'll talk with them and we'll share with them stories of our past, decisions we've made, steps of faith we've taken, seasons of waiting, all of those things that, that go with life and go with serving Christ and, just, and go with, with just walking through life together. And we'll share these stories and we'll share our history with them and decisions and things we've done not so much just so they know our history. I mean, there's, I think that, that we want them to know that, but we'll share it with them so that they can glean from our lives, so that they can, they can be, whether inspired, they can grow from our mistakes, so they can be challenged by it, but we'll share it with them so that they learn from the past to propel them forward into the future. And this is what James says. He says, learn from the past. He says, be inspired, verse 10. He says, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He says, look to the past. When we, when we read scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, sometimes we can allow our mindset, we can allow our, our, our minds to get focused down with all the details and who went where and who married who and what city was taken and what sword was used and all of these different details. But the point is, it tells us is those stories are there to inspire, to challenge us. So that when we look at these men and women who are very real, like you and me, next week we'll talk about Elijah. It says he's a, a man just like you and me. Or you look and you look at the story of Deborah, and, or you look at the story of Esther, 
or you look at the story of Hezekiah, or you look at these other stories of these men and women just like you and me, and in our minds they've become larger than life, but to realize that they were men and women just like you and me, and they were able to persevere, to push forward, to endure, to keep their eye on the prize, and, and to trust God through it, even when they didn't see what the next page held for them. When they didn't understand and see what was coming, they chose to trust God in spite of what answer did or did not come. And the Bible tells us those are there for our inspiration. They're there for our encouragement. They're there to build our faith, and they're there to, to really inspire and challenge us. Look with me, and um, if you look in uh, Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement that they provide that we might have hope. That those stories were given to encourage us, to propel us forward, to give us hope as we patiently wait for the return of Christ. And then the last thing that I would give you when it comes to how we're to wait is we're to wait with consistency. We wait with consistency. Look at verse 12 in James chapter 5. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. What he says is to, to let our lives match our lips. For I would imagine for parents, and I'm, I'm sure there was a time uh, that I've heard this even preached in James chapter 5, verse 12. It says to, above all, let your si my brothers and sisters do not swear. That when it says do not swear, and there's perhaps there's even parents here who have used that verse, do not swear, to, to tell your kid, well, you're not supposed to use bad language. Um, you're not supposed to use profanity and, and not to kind of take away from uh, that teaching moment for your child. But if that's a passage you're using, you're using it wrong. Um, there's, there's other passages that do talk about that. So don't leave here thinking, well, Pastor Steve said it's okay to swear. That's not what I'm saying. Um, there's other passages. And if you need them, I'll give them to you. Um, but when James says, don't swear, he's not talking about profanity from our mouth. But rather, he's talking about giving an oath taking an oath, making a commitment. In James's day, very few people wrote, written, uh, signed contracts. Rather, it was kind of the handshake, the oath, giving a spoken word, and that your word carried something. But by James's day, the, the, the word, someone's spoken word, really had diminished in, in, um, in being trusted. And so really, it had, in his day, had become the equivalent of what we'd have with with a child, if you remember as a kid, someone saying, well, I cross my heart and hope to die, but uh, as, as they're swearing that what they're telling you is true, but then all the while behind their back, they're crossing their fingers. Um, that's, what, that's kind of what James is saying. And he's saying, but let there be consistency in what you say and what you do. Let there be consistency. Let there be integrity. Let what you say match up with what you do. And while that goes beyond just uh, being a person of integrity in how, what you say and following through, it speaks to all of life. Because isn't the whole Christian life about our profession of faith in Jesus Christ and the life that we live that matches it? That's exactly what James is saying, that there's this consistency in our lives. Um, there's a, a, a passage that I shared with you quote out of a book towards the beginning of this series that I wanted to share with you. I thought it'd be fitting to kind of conclude uh, this morning as we're, we're looking at James and what he's talking about, the return of Christ. And I shared it early on in this series. Uh, it's written by Derek Prince out of the book, Lucifer Exposed, but I want to share it with you one more time. It says this, in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Paul told us, told us that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back for those who are his. Galatians 5.24 tells us that those who are his are those who have crucified the flesh with its afflictions and desires. Who is Jesus coming back for? 
those who have crucified the flesh. He's not coming back for everybody who professes to be a Christian and leads a carnal, selfish, self-indulgent life. He's coming back for those who have allowed the cross to do its work in their carnal nature. Those who are living according to their old carnal or fleshly nature, an unregenerate nature, cannot please God. Whether they are religious or or unreligious is not important. There is one simple way to be separated from the world and to be totally committed to the government of Jesus in our lives. That is what the world is not. See, when we talk about the return of Christ and the coming of the Lord, that is not just merely a doctrine that we dust off and, and brush up on from time to time, but rather it is, it is a living reality that should shape the decisions we make today. It's a living reality that should shape the decisions you make tomorrow, that it's meant to shape every part of our lives. Uh, it, it, in the early church, it changed who they were. It changed how they did life as it should change how we do life, how we go about our lives. So if you want to live, if you want to emerge victoriously, not for something as short as this life, but for eternity, then live daily with the return of Christ in your mind and in your lifestyle.